And so in this time of year, uh, when our culture wants to, to feed and encourage this extreme optimism about the ability of uh, people to uh, make ourselves better and change ourselves and recreate ourselves, we're going to look today at a part of the Bible that actually, rather than having an optimistic view of the human condition and our ability to uh, change ourselves, we're going to look at a part of the Bible that actually seems to have a lot of pessimism about the human condition. <laughs> it's a good balance. Yeah, he's, he's excited. And that is the book of Judges. And I don't know if you've um, spent a lot of time in the book of Judges. It's a historical account filled with evil, conflict, uh, battles, slaughter, failure, uh, and rebellion against God. It's a, a, it's, it records a time in history when God's people were turning their back on God again and again and again, just over a thousand years before Jesus. It's, a, it's dark and violent, and at times pretty depressing, but as we're going to see, although Judges is pessimistic about the nature of the human heart, it actually gives us a far more profound message of hope than anything our culture has for us. Now, as we look at the book of Judges, we're going to be narrowing in on the account of a man named Gideon. He's one of the more well-known judges, but also one whose story is often quite significantly misunderstood. So if you've got a Bible in front of you or a phone with a Bible app, open up with me to Judges chapters 6 to 8. We're going to look at Judges chapter 6 to 8. So we're covering a lot of ground, three whole chapters. It's a lot of ground to cover, so it'll be a bit of a whirlwind tour. But we're going to look at the story of Gideon in three main stages. We're going to look at Gideon chosen, Gideon triumphs, and then mild spoiler alert, Gideon falls. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, Judges chapter 6. First up, Gideon Chosen. Now, as I mentioned just before, uh, Judges shows us God's people turning their backs on him again and again. And in the first five chapters of Judges, that comes just before this, uh, we've already seen them rebel against him multiple times. And you see this uh, very consistent, sadly, cycle that happens throughout the book of Judges just again and again and again. So what happens is it says uh, the people do evil in the eyes of the Lord and they start worshipping other gods. So God disciplines them, he'll, hand them into, he'll give them into the hands of their enemies to punish them. Because of that, they'll see the error of their ways, so they'll turn back to him and cry out for help. So he'll raise up a judge and deliver them and save them, and everything looks great. And then they do the exact same thing again, and you go through this process time and time again. And so uh, here we come to the start of Judges chapter 6, And the cycle of rebellion starts all over again. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. These are some of the people around them. And now because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Okay, so here we see that once again, Israel's rebelled against God, and once again, he's disciplined them by giving them into the hands of their enemies. And have a look, I mean, it's a pretty rough situation. It's so bad that they're literally hiding in caves. They're helpless against the power of the Midianites, so they're, they're hiding in whatever hideout they can find. They were helpless. 
they needed someone to save them. And so the stage is set for the entrance of our hero, Gideon. So jump down a little bit. We're going to have a look at chapter 6, verse 11. Here's what it says. Uh, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that's a place in Israel, that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. He's hiding from them. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, in response, Gideon expresses some doubt about the situation. and He says, really? Is God really with us? If he was, then why are we struggling so much? He kind of blames God for the situation that they're in, which is a bit of a role reversal, really. But then, even though Gideon expresses doubt, God, God is persistent. He says in verse 14, The Lord turned to him and said, Gideon, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So, to save Israel from their enemies, God has chosen Gideon. He said, I'm sending you. Go, save them. But Gideon is petrified. Have a look at verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now, at this point, we begin to see some of the irony in what God has been saying. You know, in verse 14, God said that Gideon was a mighty warrior, but in reality, he is anything but. God has told him, go in your own strength to save the people of Israel, but Gideon doesn't have any strength to speak of. I mean, here he is hiding in a wine press, right? Now, God knows this, of course, God knows that Gideon is no mighty warrior, but that's part of God's plan. And so, undeterred by Gideon, who's trying to get out of the situation, God says, The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That huge marauding army, all those Midianite soldiers, he says, you're going to save your people from all of them. Okay, so here we see that God has chosen Gideon, to be the next judge, the next deliverer, to save his people Israel. But, but here's the question, why? Why of all the people in Israel was Gideon chosen? Well, as Gideon told us in verse 15, it's not because he was from a strong or influential family, is it? And it's not because he was brave or courageous either. Not at all. Well, uh, even shortly after this, when God commanded uh, Gideon to demolish his own family's altar to false gods. Yes, Gideon and his family were worshipping false gods. Uh, Gideon obeyed, but he was anything but courageous. Have a look, chapter 6, verse 25. Verse 25, the Lord said to him, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, an altar to Baal and a an Asherah pole, those are just two different kind of pagan idol-worshipping things that people use to worship these false gods. So God says, God points out that even Gideon and his own family have been unfaithful to God. So what does Gideon do? Well, verse 27 tells us, so in obedience to God, Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but Because he was afraid of his family and the people of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. 
I mean, just picture it. It's not like Gideon is the hero who you know, comes into town and tears down the altars to the false god and rallies his people and says, no, turn back to worship the true and living God. We need to turn back to him. No, he's, he's petrified. He's going at night. Oh, I guess I have to do this. Hopefully no one notices it was me. He's not exactly a courageous hero, is he? And it's not like, um, so he's not from an impressive family. He's not courageous. But it's not even like he's got strong faith either. So one of the things that Gideon is known for uh, is putting out the fleece, which is something that we read uh, later in chapter 6, where he asks God for sign after sign. Now, again, it's commonly misunderstood that oh, Gideon was this strong man of faith who saved God's people, and so we should put out a fleece like he did. But no, even in Judges 6, it shows us that Gideon shouldn't have been doing that. It was a sign of his lack of faith in God that he kept asking for sign after sign. In fact, in chapter 6, Gideon even says, please God, don't be angry with me, but let me just ask for one more sign. It's a sign of his lack of faith. And it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, Judges is not painting a positive picture of Gideon, is it? And yet this is the person, this weak and unexpected person, through whom God is going to graciously save his people. So there's part one of the story, Gideon chosen. Gideon's been chosen, and now we come to part two, Gideon triumphs. Now this is a bit of a whirlwind tour, so we've now fast forward a bit, and Gideon is ready with his army to take on the Midianites. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Judges chapter 7, Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, that's uh, Jeroboam is his nickname, uh, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. Okay, so here we have Gideon. He's got his whole army there encamped and the, the Midianite soldiers are not far away. He's poised, he's ready to strike. But first, before he attacks them, God has some perplexing marching orders. Have a look with me in your Bibles at verse 2. He says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, just to make sure we all heard that right, God did not say, okay, before you can fight these Midianites, there's one problem, you have too few men. Let's bolster the ranks a bit. No, on the contrary, he says you have too many. He brings the army down from 32,000 to just 10. And this is to face an enemy army that we're told numbers over 130,000. They were already vastly outnumbered to begin with, and God reduces the army. And why? Because God knows that if the whole army goes into battle, the Israelites are going to think they did it by their own strength. They'll pat themselves on the back, they'll give themselves the credit, and continue turning their backs on God just like they had been. God loves them too much to let them do that. He wants them to know that it's Him saving them so that they turn back to Him. And so, God starts to shrink the army. First, down from 32,000 to 10,000. 
And then in verse 4, God says, nope, there are still too many. So he brings it down to just 300. We're now talking about less than 1% of the original army Gideon had to face an enemy army of over 130,000. It's crazy. I mean, 300 people? And, and look at this. Look, this is how the enemy are described in verse 12. The Midianites, Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Picture it, just covering the hillside. You can't even see any ground. They're just so thick encamped there. Their camels, think they're basically war horses of the Middle East, their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. It's this huge army of countless thousands, and the good guys are facing them with a tiny force of just 300. It's a great concept. I think you could make a good movie out of that, you know, call it 300 or something. You heard, you heard it here first. Sounds pretty heroic. Yeah, and for the record, this is, this is about, what, 700 years before uh, the Greek story of Thermopylae, so I'm not sure where the Greeks got their idea for, for this story from. But in reality, in, in the first time it happened, this actual historical account, this is anything but a heroic band of 300 crack soldiers. This isn't the Spartan troops who uh, make up for their small number by their military prowess and courage. No, on the contrary, the whole point of God shrinking the army is so that they would know it's not in their strength. It's not their strength that's saving them. In fact, the criteria he used to shrink the army was he picked the 300 soldiers who, when they went to drink, instead of you know, drinking like this and bringing water to their mouths, they went down and lapped up the water like dogs, it literally says. And we love dogs in our society, at least I do, and many Westerners do. But back then, dogs were not nice little pets. They were kind of seen as dirty and horrible. So it's this rabble that God has chosen. I mean, it seems crazy, right? And in fact, as we're about to see, these 300 men, to win the battle over the Midianites, they don't even swing a sword. Have a look with me. We find the account of the battle in Judges 7, verses 19 to 21. Gideon and his men are split into three groups of 100 each. And have a look with me in your Bibles at verse 19 to see what happens. So the three companies of Israelite soldiers blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Have I jumped ahead already? Okay, just read verse 19. Um, Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch of the night, just after they had changed the guard. So the 300 men are coming. It's the middle of the night. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. Then verse 20, the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Just like that, the Midianite army of over 100,000 men is fleeing. They were defeated. And do you notice what the Israelite army was doing while they were fleeing? Were they charging in and mowing down their enemies? Verse 21 tells us they held their position. That's military speak for, they just stood there. (laughs) It goes on to say in verse 22, when the 300, um, oh, I've missed that one. If you've got a Bible in front of you, have a look at verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. 
You see, it says, while the men stood there, it was the Lord who caused the Midianites to turn on each other. And just like that, they were defeated. Now, to be clear, Gideon, he does call out other Israelites to join the fight and mop up the survivors. But the battle was won before they even lifted a sword. God has saved his people and he's done it through a weak man like Gideon and a tiny group of soldiers. Now, there's both a challenge and an encouragement for us here. So as we've seen, God knew that if he saved Israel using a normal-sized army, they would boast about it and take the credit for themselves. He knew that their hearts were so corrupt, he couldn't even save them in a normal way without them just continuing to turn their back on him. Instead of thanking God, they would get puffed up with empty pride. That's why in verse 2 it says, you have too many men. They'll say, my own strength has saved me. And the challenge for us is, how often do we fall into the same trap? How often do we take credit for what God has done for us? How often do we look at the things that we've accomplished in our own lives and that think that we've somehow earned them or deserve them, that we have a right to them? Think about your job, your education, your money. If you're anything like me, we can be tempted to think, think, well, I worked hard for that. I earned it. No one gave that to me on a silver platter, so I can do what I like with it. And I can maybe look down on those who haven't worked as hard as me. But listen to the warning God gave Israel before they even entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18, God says, You may say to yourselves, My strength and the power of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Now notice, God is not disputing that we work hard, right? But He's asking the question, who enables us to work hard? Who gives us the opportunities for our hard work to pay off? You know, people say, well, hard work, you know, pays off. And, and the people who work the hardest are going to be the best off. But, you know, tell that to the sub, sub-Saharan African woman who works 14 hours a day to just to live in poverty. It's not her lack of hard work that means she's struggling in poverty. I mean, think about me. I didn't choose to be born in a, in a wealthy country like Australia. I had no say in that. I didn't choose to be born in a family. I didn't earn it to be born in a family with parents who love me and gave me opportunities and education. I mean, sure, I work hard, but who gave me the ability to work hard? It all comes from God's loving hand, doesn't it? And that means that he gets the credit, not me. My money, my job, my accomplishments, I mean, whatever it might be, he gets the glory for all that. And this shift in attitude has profound implications. If I look at the things in my life as things I deserve, then my heart can be puffed up with, with, and become proud. And I look down on others who haven't done as well as I have. But if I recognize that ultimately even the things I work hard for are gifts from God, or even as we saw a few weeks ago, even our very hard work is a gift from God. It's God's empowering and enabling grace, isn't it? Well, that difference is profound. My, my heart becomes thankful. Suddenly, instead of, uh, suddenly I'm looking to bless others who haven't had the same opportunities that I've had. 
So that's a real challenge for us, isn't it, from this passage? Let's not fall into that same trap as the Israelites and take credit for ourselves when it's God who has done great things for us. So there's a challenge, but this passage also gives us great encouragement because it shows us that God delights to use us in our weakness. That's certainly how God did things in Gideon's day, as we've seen, but that's also how God still does things today. So have a look at 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, rather, 26 to 29. This is talking to New Covenant believers. It's talking to Christians. And it says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Just to be clear, he's talking about us. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Why? So that no one may boast. It's the same message from the story of Gideon, isn't it? What this tells us is that God chooses weak and unimpressive people to be Christians. It's not like, oh, God suddenly found him stuck with all these weak and kind of awkward people. And he's like, all right, I'm going to see what I can make out of this. Life's thrown me lemons. I'm going to try and make lemonade. No, it says God chose the weak. He intentionally and specifically and purposefully chose those who are unimpressive to be called by the name of Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? And why did he do that? So that no one may boast. So that no one would think, it's my own strength that has saved me. You know, imagine, imagine Christians were the most moral people in this world. The Christians were really good and upstanding, good people, and all the other people were bad out there. Well, Christians would be very tempted to think, wouldn't they? Well, God's chosen to save me because I'm such a good person. I'm clever. I'm faithful. I've just got a bit more spiritual wisdom than these other people. And God says, I'm not going to let you think that for a second. I chose you to be a follower of Jesus because you are sinful, weak, foolish, so that my grace would be magnified. So that no one would think being a Christian is based on how good you are as a person, but based on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that no one can boast. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how counterintuitive and countercultural the way that God works. And what this shows us is that in our weakness, God does this so that in our weakness, His strength, His wisdom would be crystal clear. And this is such a huge encouragement. I mean, do you ever feel too weak to be used by God? Do you ever feel too foolish? Perhaps too young, not educated enough or outgoing enough or gifted enough? Well, let me just encourage you that you are the precisely the kind of person who God loves to use for his purposes. You know, Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations, to share the gospel, to draw other people to know Jesus, to build up and encourage others who already follow him. But surely God wouldn't use people like you and me, ordinary people like us, to make disciples of all nations, would he? Well, the Bible tells us that that's precisely how God loves to work. 
it's not just even in our weakness, but especially in our weakness. God can use you powerfully to encourage others, to serve, teach, pray, give. And so as we head into 2020, be encouraged and be on the lookout for how God might use you for his purposes, even in the midst of your weakness, to make the gospel known and bring glory to his son, Jesus. Okay, so we've seen Gideon chosen, Gideon triumphs, and now sadly we come to part three, Gideon falls. So we're continuing our whirlwind tour and jumping forward to Judges 8. And have a look with me in your Bibles at Judges chapter 8, verse 22, where the Israelites come to Gideon after the battle has been won. Verse 22. Verse 22, they say to him, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. Rule over us, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. They're saying, Hey, be our king. Sounds like a pretty good gig for Gideon, right? But have a look at how he responds, verse 23. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule, nor will my son rule over you. Why? The Lord will rule over you. He's saying, look, it wasn't me who rescued you, it was God. I shouldn't rule over you, he should. Now that's a really good response, isn't it? Gideon recognizes that it's not his strength that has saved Israel. So it looks like it's going really well. But then have a look at the very next verse, verse 24. And he said, I do have one request, though, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Now, that then goes on to explain that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, the people they conquered, all used to wear gold earrings. It was part of their culture. So when you kill kind of 130,000 of them, you've got quite a lot of gold earrings left. So they're like, yeah, sure, we'll give you some, some of our earrings from the, the plunder. But it's a bit of a weird request. I mean, what is Gideon planning to do with all the gold from these earrings? And here's where things go downhill really quickly. Have a look at verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his hometown. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it, worshipping the ephod there, and it became the snare to Gideon and his family. Now, an ephod is a Hebrew word that referred to a chest piece that a priest would wear. So it's kind of a spiritual garment. And Gideon made one out of gold, sets it up on a pedestal, and starts worshipping it. It's crazy, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to make any sense. This brings us to the depressing end of Gideon's story. His fall is not a military one, but far worse than that a moral and spiritual one. He delivered Israel from their enemies, but then he leads them right back to where they started, forsaking the true God and worshipping other ones. It's like, Gideon, what are you doing? Now, this is one of the moments, one of many, that makes the book of Judges so depressing. Time and time again, we see this vicious cycle doesn't matter how many times God saves them, they just head right back down again and start turning their back on Him. They just don't learn. And, you know, it would be so easy to look at that and, just, and start pointing a finger, to look at them and think, 
Gideon, Israelites, how could you be so dumb? How could you keep turning your back on God even when you know it goes best when you follow him? Except that even as I say that, I'm reminded of all the times in my own life when I've turned my back on God and his ways, just like they did. I've seen the same vicious cycle in my own life. I'm constantly tempted to turn my back on God, to forget him when times are good, to blame him when times are bad, to boast and claim the credit when I accomplish things. And even if we don't turn to idols of wood and stone and gold like they did, there are plenty of idols like money and work and success that we build our lives on rather than God. That's certainly true of my life. You see, the same sinful heart that led the Israelites to abandon God time and time again, the same sinful heart that led Gideon astray, that's the same sinful heart that's in me and in you. It's in all of us. And what this shows us is that we need a better rescuer than someone like Gideon, doesn't it? We need more than just someone who can deliver us from the enemy out there. We need someone who can deliver us from the enemy in here. I mean, Gideon delivered them from this huge, powerful army, but he was powerless against the enemy within, the sin in his heart and theirs. And that's why, even though the book of Judges is so dark and violent and depressing, it has such a strong message of hope because it's relentlessly pushing us forward to Jesus. To the, to the day when that better deliverer would come. It reminds us firstly of our own sinfulness that we see mirrored in the lives of the Israelites. And it reminds us secondly of the inadequacy of any other deliverer apart from the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is a true and better Gideon who defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, and broke the power of sin in our lives. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and then rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death once and for all. Jesus is the true and better judge who saves his people through the weakness of the cross. Not marching at the head of an army, but surrendering himself in selfless love. Dying the death that we all deserve. And that is the only thing that can save us from the sin that we are so helpless against. As we head into 2020 and the new year, that is good news that we need to be reminded of. Because you see, especially at this time of year, but really all year, our culture wants to sell us the idea that if we just try harder, if we just sign up to their program, make that New Year's resolution, we just work a bit harder, we can really change ourselves. We can save ourselves from those bad habits that are holding us back. We can recreate ourselves and be the people we want to be if we just try harder. And that might initially sound empowering. You can be the master of your own destiny, but it's actually crushing. Yes, it might sound good for the first few days of January, when our optimism for the new year uh, is still high. But sooner or later, and it doesn't take long in my experience, reality kicks in. 
And as millions upon millions of failed New Year's resolutions show us, our projects of self-salvation just don't work. Our culture has fed us an empty promise and it always fails to deliver. But the Bible's account of the human condition is, yes, far more sober, but it's far more realistic, isn't it? It reminds us that we can't save ourselves. Just like the Israelites and just like Gideon, we're powerless to save ourselves from the enemy in our own hearts. And that might at first sound depressing, but it's filled with far more hope because it stops us from depending on ourselves and turns our gaze to someone who is far more reliable. Because you see, even in the midst of Israel's repeated rebellion against God throughout the book of Judges, a a historical period that covers centuries, over centuries of their rebellion, he never turns his back on them. He never gives up on them. He keeps saving them. He keeps sending a deliverer. And so the book of Judges might be dark, but in it we see God's relentless faithfulness, mercy, patience, and love, even in the midst of his people's unfaithfulness. And it points us forward to the day when Jesus would send, when God would send that true and better Savior to save us once and for all. And that's a great reminder as we head into 2020.